God is doing great things, isn't he? The, the, the kingdom of God is expanding in every single continent. It is in every country. It is even in North Korea, even though it's hard to hear about him there. The kingdom of God is everywhere. It is amazing what God is doing. He's bringing salvation and hope and life and, re- and redemption everywhere, including here. And so we're going to talk about today why God has the ability to do that in our names of God, who he is. And it's amazing. In our Names of God series so far, we've looked in Scripture how God has revealed himself to us, and we learned something about him by his name. And the first thing, first name that we talked about a few weeks ago was Elohim, right? And that's God, translated in the Bible as God, and this is the powerful creator, the God who keeps covenant, the God who, who has the ability to make order even out of chaos, God. And then we talked about God is by the name that he's given us to know him by, Yahweh. The self-existent God, right? The, the one who is, he's the, he the reality even behind truth. How awesome is that? But he is the one who reveals truth. He's holy and the one who makes us holy. He is righteous, always does what is right. In fact, right is right because of who he is. And he's the one who can make us right. And he's the God who saves us, Yahweh, who redeems us. And we talked about last week, El Shaddai. God has revealed himself. This is an attribute of God as being God Almighty, and that really means exactly what it sounds like. Almighty. The God who's able to do anything. He's all-powerful, but he's also unfailing. He's a God that doesn't just use his power for his own self-interest, but he always does what is good because he is righteous, and he never, ever, ever will let us down. And more than that, we found out that, that the God Almighty is the one who blesses us, and he's committed to making us have fruitful lives. If we are in him, he says, uh, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can't do anything. You're not going to have the power. But isn't it great that he does? But then he says that with him, you will bear much fruit. That's the promise. Will, not if. Your life will matter. There's fruit. There is, God is the one who is committed to our faithfulness. And today, we talk about a different attribute of God. And this is more of a position that God has. And uh, the new name of God that we have is actually found in today's memory verse, 2 Timothy 4.18. And it says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that an awesome verse? This is a verse that has gotten me through some very, very difficult times. Right? And the name of God that we have in there is translated right here, the Lord. And you'll notice that it's lowercase l-o-r-d, not, not L cap, you know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital E. That's Yahweh in Scripture. It's the big ones. This one is capital L-O-R-D, and that is the name that we'll be talking about today. And look at the promise that we have because of this God who is our Lord to rescue us from every evil attack. You feel attacked? God's there to rescue, to bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom. He has the authority and the ability to do it. We'll talk about that today. And so he gets the glory. So this is our Bible memory verse. So this is what we'll do. Just say it along with me, and then pretty soon it'll stick to your head and your heart, and it'll be pretty awesome. Here we go. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy 4.18. You know, when you have an evil attack hitting you, An evil attack. This is when you pull this passage out. Right? Because it's going to happen. It's it's not as though if the enemy is going to attack you. It will happen. But look at the promise. See, the enemy is going to try to trick you. 
right? That's what he does. He makes you think that somehow he's stronger than God. That somehow this evil attack is going to do you in. No, that's not the promise. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. That's what he does. He will rescue you. And how many evil attacks? As many. Because every means every. Which means the enemy cannot take you down. Our God is a rescuing God. And so when you feel attacked, when the world seems too big, when the storm is raging, this is a verse you pull out. The Lord will rescue me. It is not up to you. Isn't that great? El Shaddai is on your side. But even more, we have a God who has the authority to rescue you from every evil attack. And look at the promise. He doesn't just rescue and abandon you. What is he rescuing you to? will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Safely. Our security is not in this fragile, broken, shattered world, but in a God who is powerful, who is bringing us not to this world, but to a better kingdom. And our confidence is in him. This is a powerful verse. This is a verse that reminds us that the glory is not for us. We live for little things, for glories that fade. In fact, my parents were cleaning out their house, and they had a bunch of old trophies from when I was a kid. We won the four-star state champion baseball team. I got the little trophy there. I was so proud of that. Now it's in the garbage. To me, it doesn't prolong the glory forever and ever because no one cares about four-star baseball in the 80s. But to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's our kind of God. That's who's rescuing you. That's where our our peace is and our faith is. So take that Bible memory verse. Take that you have in your your bulletin, that card. Take it out right now. Put it in your pocket, your wallet. Think about this. You're going to need this. Maybe right now you're under the attack. (laughs) You quote that back to the devil. right? You quote that. You think about what does it mean. Set it to your heart and your mind. This is power. And it's, a, it's an amazing verse. And it keeps us from listening to the stupid lie of the enemy who makes us think that somehow he's going to be bigger than our God. And who is our God? Well, today's name of God, the Lord, trans, it's a word that's a, the Hebrew, it means it's Adonai. Adonai. Different than Yahweh. Yahweh is a self-existent one, right? Capital L-O-R-D, <laughs> all the big caps. That's Yahweh, that's the name of God. But in your Bible, when it's little caps, it's, it's capital L with something small, it's, it's a position. In fact, Adonai is, is, uh, is used 300 times in the Bible in reference to God, and a lot of other times, not in reference to God. It's talking about the boss. It's talking about the master. Like a king is an Adonai. When you talk about somebody who's got authority, and our God is the one who has authority. How much authority? He says, I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he proved it. Jesus, when he came back, he said, you know what? Uh, And he sent us out. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a lot of authority. It means there's nowhere that's really outside of his jurisdiction. He is Adonai. He is the master. And other times in Scripture, it's not just uh, translated as Lord. In fact, New Testament uses a different word because uh, New Testament was written in Greek, not Hebrew. The New Testament is curious, but it's the same concept, the same idea. And both of those sometimes in Scripture are translated as Lord. Sometimes they're translated as Master. And a few times it's translated as Sovereign. And I want you to think about those, the concept. It's sovereign is an interesting one, right? It's because we don't really call people Sovereign that often. 
But you think about the idea of what sovereign is. Sovereign means that you're, you are accountable to this yourself, right? To no one else in this. For example, the United States is a sovereign nation, which means that when we pass our laws, we don't have to ask Canada, can I pass this law? Right? right? We don't have to. We can pass our laws. And, and we can do those things inside of our national boundary that we want to do. We're a sovereign, right? And let's just say Costa Rica passes a law that says that Americans need to be taxed by them. Well, they can pass all the laws they want to, but we don't have to pay those taxes because they're not sovereign over us. We are sovereign from them, right? We're not subject to them. Or maybe more personally, instead of a sovereign nation, think about yourself when you were 18 and you moved out of your house. Right? Before you moved out, you were not sovereign, Right? You had certain breakfast cereals that you had to eat that weren't sugary because your parents wouldn't let you have those things, right? And you had to go to bed at a certain time, and you had curfew, and all these rules because you weren't sovereign, and you didn't get a chance to make those rules. You were part of the house. But when you moved out, you were sovereign. You could buy Frosted Flakes, <laughs> right? You could stay up to 2 in the morning. You could go on a camping trip and not to call up and say, hey, can I go on a camping trip? You were sovereign. You could go do it. But then also you had the responsibility to care for yourself, Sovereign. Our God is sovereign. For us to understand that he's not beholden to anybody. He is the highest of all authority. That's what makes him different than just like some other king, right? Some other master. He is sovereign. Adonai signifies then his authority over all things. When you see the Lord in scripture, when you see Adonai, it talks about his authority, his his moral, ethical, and legal right to be able to, to make command, commands, to be able to expect things from us. He is morally, legally, and, and ethically, he has the right to, to do that. And this is important for us because it's not that he's El Shaddai. That's not what gives him the authority to tell us what to do. For example, the United States is a very powerful country, aren't we? A very powerful country. We're more powerful, I think, than any other country in the world. And there are a lot of other countries in this world that don't have the power that we do, but we can't pass laws for them. right? If we said, we passed a law and said, everyone in Kenya has to wear blue shirts on Friday, we could do that. But we wouldn't have the authority to tell them they have to wear blue shirts on Friday. And if we imposed that, we would be breaking laws. right? We would be unjust. Our power does not give us our authority. You know, another example would be, you know, you might have, uh, uh, you, you might be a, uh, let's say we take a police officer, a really, really tough, really powerful police officer, right, and might be a really strong guy, and you take him outside of his jurisdiction, maybe you take a, a Colorado State Patrolman, and he might be really tough and powerful, and you put him into Kansas, he can pull you over with his really fancy car, but he can't give you a ticket, Right? He can wrestle you to ground, but he can't arrest you. Does that make sense? That authority is different than power. And that's different because most other faiths will tell you something if you go philosophically down the line far enough that might makes right. That the powerful is what gives them the authority to do what they want. But that's not so with God. He does not have the authority to tell us what we do just because he is strong. He has authority to tell us what to do, the moral, legal, and ethical authority because of his position. And his position comes from who he is. He is the creator, right? That's why we started with Elohim. 
So we started with, he is the one who made us. He is the master of this domain because he made this domain. And because he is master, he has the positional authority, the right to expect us to obey him. And Malachi, a prophet of Malachi in the Old Testament, one of the last ones, he writes this in his book. He says, a son, this is God speaking through the prophet, by the way, a son honors his father and a slave his Adonai. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master or if I'm an Adonai, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. Notice what he he reveals himself to it. First he says, you know what? I am. (laughs) I am an I am the Adonai. I have authority. And therefore, I deserve respect. I deserve obedience. He doesn't say, if a, I am a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, he, you know, he doesn't say, if I'm all powerful, where's the honor due me? He says, I'm the master. That's why he deserves respect. And at the end, he reminds us, says the Almighty. <laughs> it is his positional authority that, require, that, that gives him the, the right to be able to demand obedience from us. And that's a good thing. And so, what we want to see in Scripture, then how does Adonai reveal himself in Scripture? Right? This, God in his position as Adonai, as master, as sovereign, how does he reveal himself to us? And so we're going to start first with the Old Testament, and we'll look at it in the New Testament. So starting in the Old Testament, how does Adonai reveal himself? Well, the first place that Adonai reveals himself in Scripture, that the, the word Adonai is applied to God, in Scripture, is in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, which we've been there quite a bit already in this series, God's revealed himself a lot to us in Genesis, Abraham understood that Adonai meant uh, complete possession. Abraham is is meeting with God. Abraham uh, has this, uh, God is telling Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you. Right? And Abraham recognizes who God is. He, even though he didn't have the scripture yet, he, there was no Jewish people yet. He was the first, right? But he would have heard of the flood, guaranteed. He would have heard about you know, the, the Tower of Babel. He would have heard about creation. He had a concept that God was all-powerful, that God was, had authority. And so he responds to God in that. And this is what God says to him in Genesis 15. In this conversation, it says, After this, the war of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. It says, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. That sounds like a, a strange conversation. God shows up and says, I'm going to bless you. And he's like, Wait a second, how could you possibly bless me? He's not doubting that God could bless, but he doesn't. But to understand, like, Abram, and by the way, Abram, God changed his name later on to Abraham, same guy. God says to him, uh, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do something. And Abram, he responds to God by his position. He says, Adonai Yahweh, who you are, Yahweh, Adonai, your position, master. Right? You have the right to promise anything you want. But Abram says, I don't understand how this is all going to work. But the first way that we see that God reveals himself to him is, is right there. And he says, God is saying, I have the authority, Abram, to tell you what to do, and I have the authority to bless you. That's what I have the authority to do. That's the way that God reveals himself to us the very first time. And Abram understood this, and he understood that it deserved obedience. And so he had a question for God. He didn't say, oh, you're crazy. He said to God, okay, <laughs> I will do it. And then later on, God explains, answers his questions, and Abram's faithful. Because Abraham understood that Yahweh was also Adonai. 
had the authority to tell him what to do. Now, God is our sovereign master, right? He is our owner. And so Abraham recognized he was created. And we're recognizing this. There's something, and I want to tell you, this is not a seeker-sensitive message. So if you're not a, in, in Christ, okay, this, I'm just going to, you're going to get to see the, the curtain pulled back. This is what Christians understand. what the Bible reveals about itself, okay? And recognize this. The Bible was not written for Christians originally from the 21st century in the United States, okay? It was written for all people for all time, including us. But God just reveals who he is and how he is. And the first people that this Bible was written to were people that were slaves, that were just set free, <laughs> and they had an understanding of, of the way the world worked, which is very different than how we understand. And I want you to understand one thing that, from that mindset is that uh, Adonai is master. That is, there's no real word in our language that really captures that. It's different than, than being a slave owner, but it's, it's also different than being a boss. It's kind of somewhere in between. We really have something that fits that. But in understanding that in the ancient culture where this was written, being a servant was better than just being an employee. And that breaks our brains as Americans, doesn't it? Because we think about when people owned people and that was bad because people are broken and so we should never own people. Slavery, we would all agree, is a bad thing, right? But this was written to a group of people that were all slaves that were just set free, right? That's, they understood this. But in their culture, the ancient culture, being an employee was a stranger. It was an outsider. I would pay you as a day laborer or something like this. You would come to my, my orchard. You would work. Uh, I would give you your money, and you go home, and then you didn't have to care about me, and I didn't have to care about you. I just, the, the, the whole focus of our relationship was the job that you got done. That's the job between an employee and employer, right? And if you didn't do your job well, then I wouldn't pay you, right? Or if I didn't pay you, you'd stop working. Or say I did pay you, and you got mugged on the way home. Not my problem, Right? Or say that you went home and you wasted all of your money and you lived a horrible lifestyle and then you spent the next night out on the streets because you were a poor steward. As an employee, I wouldn't care, right? As an employer, I have no obligation to care for you. But it's different for a servant. A servant was part of the master's household. A servant at the end of the day wouldn't be sent away with a wage but would be invited to a table to eat. Right? A servant, if he got sick, the master was obligated to make sure that he was cared for. If the servant was assaulted, was mugged, the master's job was to protect the servant as well. There was a mutual uh, responsibility towards one another. And it doesn't work that way in our culture, but it did here. And I want you to understand that the higher status of the servant, when God says, I'm going to bless you, where does Abram Abraham go? He says, how can you bless me? I don't have a biological son. Who's going to inherit his estate? His servant. This guy named Eliezer of Damascus. Somebody who wasn't part of his biological family, but was part of his household. I'll tell you, you could work for Bill Gates. You could be his best employee ever. Right? But when he passes away, even if all of his kids died, right? You wouldn't get his inheritance. It's just not natural that you get his inheritance because you're not part of his house. A servant was part of the master's house. Now, you need to copy this, couple this message with what's going to, my son's going to talk about next week. But to start with, to say this, that God is master. To understand that, that we are servants of his. And because of that, we have a master's affection and protection. The Lord will rescue me. Why? That's the relationship we have with him. We're not just God's employees. 
And it's so important we get that because if we were just God's employees, then the focus of our relationship with God would all be about what you can do. What's your output? Aren't you glad that that's not the focus? We are part of the master's household. See, an own servant was like family. And it's to the point that even like an own servant would, would observe Passover and with their same family that they served. They wouldn't go away for the holiday. They would be invited in for the holiday. They would have, it was just a better, much better relationship. And so we find that uh, the very first time we see Adonai in Scripture, God is revealing himself to Abraham as master, saying, you know what, you're more than just doing a job for me. You're not just going to go do something for me and I'll pay you. Saying I'm part of now, I'm, I'm owned by God. I'm under his authority. He is my master. But then also I have the obligation then to obey him. And Abraham gets that. You know, we find the same pattern throughout Scripture. There's the next guy that maybe would think about. Uh, God met with Abraham and said, listen, I'm going to give you a biological kid. In fact, I'm gonna, you're going to have so many descendants, you can't even count them, right? And then God promises them later on. He says, and those biological kids, by the way, um, they're going to be really numerous, and they're going to go to Egypt, and they're going to be slaves for a while, and then I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to set them free, and I'm going to bring them back. And that's exactly what happened. The, the people of Israel, Abraham had this kid named Isaac. Isaac had this kid named Jacob. God changed the, names, the kid's name to Israel because it's much cooler. Israel had 12 kids, right, sons and a daughter. And they had a bunch of kids. And those kids had kids. And all of a sudden, they were really numerous. They ended up getting over into Egypt. Things were going good for a while. King forgot who they were. They were massive by this point. Then they became slaves for several hundred years. And then God raises one of their own up, a guy named Moses. Moses was saved by God through a miraculous event. God, the, the Pharaoh didn't like the Jews at all, had all the baby boys killed. And so uh, Moses was saved. His mom put him in a basket, put him in the river, said, I can't kill him, but I can't keep him. And he ended up being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. It's a great story you can read about. It's uh, just an awesome story about how God raises up this guy Moses. For 40 years, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's own household. That's about as old as I am. For 40 years. Can you think how cool that is? He was raised as a prince. And then God begins working his heart. And he starts seeing his own biological people being oppressed. And it starts to really bug him to the point that he wants to, he tries to do something righteous, but in his own way, in his own power, and in his own timing. And it doesn't work out so good. He sees his people are oppressed. He goes and he, he gets mad at, at the way that one of the Jews were oppressed. And so he does something in his own way. And he, he murders an Egyptian. And once he does that, now he's a fugitive. And so he's got to flee Egypt. And he flees and he runs out and he, he gets to the, you know, to the wilderness area and he finds this really pretty girl and she's got a dad who owns a, a, a shepherding business and so he becomes a shepherd. And for 40 years, 40 years, he's a shepherd on these hills. And being a shepherd is boring work, right? Because from what I know of sheep, they're stinky and they're stupid. Those are the two things that I know of sheep. And he's a shepherd for 40 years dealing with this. He was a prince. Now he's like dealing with sheep outside all day, right? And for 40 years, there he is. And there's no cell phones. He couldn't play games or anything. He's just boring watching sheep. 40 years. And one day, God gets his attention. He's, he's watching the sheep and a bush catches on fire. <laughs> right? He sees this bush. It's like burning, which is like, hey, cool, right? Something to look at. And as he's looking at the bush, he's like, wait a second, that bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. I'm going to go check this out. 
because he doesn't have anything else more pressing to do. So what does he do? He walks over the bush, he gets close to the bush, and then, all of a sudden, God starts speaking to him from the bush. It says, Moses! And he's like, whoa, the bush is speaking to me. Take off your sandals, the place you're standing is holy. And so he's like, ah! He takes off his sandals, he recognizes that God is talking to him. And God says to Moses, this is what I want you to do. You're going to go back to that country you're a fugitive of, and you know all those, those people that you wanted to set free earlier? It's my time now, and it's my power, and you are going to tell the Pharaoh to let those people go. And, and when Moses hears this, he's got questions. And so this is how he responds to God in Exodus 4. He says, Moses said to Adonai, pardon your servant, Adonai. Right? It begins with, I know that seems like a very boring verse, but it's very powerful because Moses at the point, he was a prince, now he was just a shepherd, and he was living outside of the promised land, and he was living outside of Egypt. He was, he was a man without a true home. He was in a lot of ways sovereign. But the first thing he does when God shows up to him is he says, wait a second, pardon, pardon me, master. He recognizes that God is master. Right from the beginning. And then he brings his questions respectfully to the master. He doesn't tell God, hey, you go take him out of Egypt if you want. He recognized that God had the authority to tell him to do something, although he had questions. So he says, pardon me, master. Then he begins to ask his questions. He's like, I stutter, so there's a problem. And I'm afraid of the king, so there's that. And God begins to answer his questions. And what does he do? Moses goes back, and God sets the people free. I mean, it's an amazing story, but we find that this pattern of, of, of the people of God recognizing who God is in the Old Testament, that he is master, is, is fundamentally, it changes the whole course of faith, especially find all through the Old Testament. Otherwise, if, if God was just almighty, but he wasn't master, we could just do what we wanted to and just try to hide from him when we were naughty, right? But he really didn't have the right to tell us what to do. Things would be different because the people of God continually, God tells them to do something that they wouldn't have done normally, right? Abraham, God says, move to somewhere you haven't ever seen before. I know you're 70. Go, and I'm going to give a promise. And he says, okay, master. Moses, he says, go back to that land where they're trying to, you know, you're a fugitive, and they probably want to kill you, and then tell them to give away all their slaves, right? And he says, yes, master. And it wasn't just these, these big patriarchs of faith. It was also, we see this even in, well, like King David. Like King David was, he's a king. We think of kings as being sovereigns, as being masters. A lot of people would have called David Adonai. Right, and, and so the, Moses brings the people to the edge of the promised land. Joshua brings them in. They have this period where they don't have a king for a while. Right, And it was called the time of the judges. And after that, then God, the people were like, we want a king. So God gave them the first king, and he was kind of lousy. And then God gave him a second king named David. David was a, a, a faithful man. And David started as a, just a shepherd, kind of like Moses. And God says, you're going to be king. And he's like, okay. And it took a while. But then eventually he becomes king of Israel. And he's sitting in his, his palace one day. He's sitting there. He's looking around. He's like, oh, man, my palace is beautiful. I got like cedar lining on the walls and all that kind of stuff. This is a great place. And he looks out the window, and he sees that the tabernacle, which is a tent, a really fancy tent, but it's a tent, and he sees that the, the sacrifices, all that stuff. And he's like, God is in a tent, and I'm in a palace. And it bothered this man so much. He's like, God is, is a is." Is powerful. He's he's master. He's Adonai. How come I have a house and God is staying out in a tent? That's not okay. So he tells his, his he's got a buddy there that's a prophet, 
And Nathan, he says to Nathan, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build God a, a, a really great house. That's what I'm going to do. And the prophet says, hey, that's a great idea. Go ahead and do it. And then that night, God talks to the prophet, and he says, well, I wish you would ask me about that. So go back, tell David, this is what I want you to tell him. I say, uh, David, I, nice offer, but I didn't ask you to build me a house. You're a man of war, and, and I will have a house built, I, I, but one of your sons will do it, a man of peace, right? You have too much, you've killed too many people. I don't want that to be associated with my name, even though he loves him. He says, but he says, David, this is what, I didn't ask you to build me a house, but what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to build you a house, David. I'm going to build you a kingdom that's never going to end. And see, David, there, you're going to have, you, you're a king, and David was the first in line of the Davidic kingdom, right? He was the first one. He was a shepherd before. He didn't have a king as a dad. He says to David, you know what? You're going to have, descendants are going to be on the throne forever. In fact, one of your descendants is going to be on the throne and will never leave, which is a promise of an a immortal king, isn't that? As a promise of the Messiah, Jesus, who is king of kings and lord of lords, who dies and is, is living forever, <laughs> fulfilled this. So God promised me the Messiah is going to come through you, right? You're going to have it, your kingdom is never going to end. And that's pretty amazing. And how does David respond? Well, to this. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, what more can David say to you? I think he was so blown away, he went to the th- third person, right? I mean, how many times have you, like, somebody's told you, I'm going to do this great thing. He's like, what can Aaron do for you, right? Like, he was so shocked, he went straight to the third person. This was such a big promise. He says, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Adonai Yahweh. For the sake of your word, according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. Here's a king. And how does he respond to God? He says, I am your servant. Even at the top of the political level, David recognizes he's still a servant. And God said, I don't want you to build me this. And so David doesn't say, well, it's my kingdom. I'm going to build it for you because I think it's embarrassing to have that tabernacle out there. It's not what he said. He said, you have the authority to do what you wish, master. That's what he said. It's not just that we would find this in the political realm from the, the people of Israel. They had King David showed that there was an Adonai above him. We also look at the prophets. You think of more of like the religious side, right? There was one of the greatest prophets of Israel, a guy named Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah, he was, uh, he was brought up in a time after David uh, left the throne. David lived a good life. He, he's passed his lineage on to a guy named Solomon, his son. And Solomon had too many wives and had, was a, not a great dad, apparently, and uh, raised a, a, a guy who wasn't a very good king after Solomon stepped down from the throne. And that Yahoo split the kingdom, like first thing he did, basically. So there was a, a divide now, was, and Israel was divided in, into two parts, but it wasn't 50-50. There was 10 tribes left and, and started what they called Israel. The last two tribes, uh, plus you have um, the, the Levites, the priestly tribes stayed, and they were, and so then you have Judah. The first 10 tribes, they were kind of, they were rebellious, and they never stopped being rebellious. One of the first things they did after they got their own kingdom is they set up a place of worship, and they built, I kid you not, the first things that they built at this place of worship was a golden calf, which if you remember back to Moses' day was kind of a no-no. That's the first thing they did. And then it got worse from there. Several hundred years of this happened. 
right? Several hundred years of rebellion and rebellion and rebellion. God brings all kinds of prophets in, warning the northern tribes, saying, listen, you're being naughty. You better change. If you don't change, then there's going to be, you're not going to like the consequence. And then eventually God is finally sending these prophets to them saying, it's done. I've had it with you, right? You're, you're going to be wiped out. You're not turning. And this was the time that Isaiah was born. And Isaiah he is, uh, he's living his life. He receives then this call from God. We read about it in Isaiah 6. And what God does is he reveals himself and his authority to Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, God takes Isaiah and he shows him the throne room in heaven, shows him that he is truly Adonai. And in that throne room, you see a picture of heaven. In there, you have the angels flying around the throne, covering their eyes, saying, the holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. The, the train of, of God's glory is filling all the things. It's an amazing passage. And, and you see Isaiah sees God in his authority for who he is. And then he realizes that he probably doesn't belong there. Have you been in a place you didn't belong? You like show up, you went maybe, uh, you showed up somewhere and you're like, I don't fit in. Isaiah had that feeling in a very strong way. Because he was there and he saw God and the holy angels and all of this stuff. And he's like, whoa, to me, I, I have not clean lips, right? You don't even want to know what I was talking about, right? And the people I live with, they don't have clean lips. They talk about horrible things all the time. I'm doomed. And then a, one of the angels says, gotcha. And he takes a hot coal from the altar that's in the throne room of God. And he takes it over. And this would have freaked me out. But he took the coal. He's like, you just duck face it, right? Right onto his lips, Right? And so Isaiah's like, guess my lips are seared. I'm good. And then after he has, he says, you know what? You're purified. You're good. This is what Isaiah sees. It says this, then I heard the voice of the Lord, Adonai, saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. The prophets start with saying, I am sent. The prophets didn't send themselves. Isaiah begins his ministry understanding that God is Adonai. He is the boss. He is master. And he saw God as boss in master in heaven. So when he says Adonai said, he was looking at all kinds of very powerful beings. But the one on the throne is the one who spoke. And the one on the throne says, I'm going to send you. And, and Isaiah says, send me. I'll, I'll do your bidding. You're the master. You have the right, moral, ethical, legal right to tell me what to do. I will do it. And God, Adonai, says to, to him, he says, yes, I will send you. And I'm going to tell you this in advance. I'm going to send you to people, and you're going to preach, and they're never going to listen to you. They're not going to respond. Their hearts are never going to get soft. Their ears, it's like you're going to say words, and go ping, they're going to bounce off your entire ministry. But you be faithful. Can you imagine, like, you'd start your job, and you'd say, you're going to fail, but I'm going to send you to go? I think Adam, that, that, that Isaiah needed to know that he was sent by Adonai, that God had the authority to send him. That's why he never gave up. And because he never gave up, it was one of the reasons why he became one of the most influential prophets in the history of the world. God spoke so many prophetic things about who Jesus was and the Messiah would be, right? So we could identify who Jesus is. God spoke through this prophet. He saw miracles and all kinds of crazy things. And you know what happened? The northern tribe didn't change. They ended up becoming obliterated. But he did his part. See, for him, he recognized that success wasn't the results. Success was obedience to Adonai. The prophets begin there. There was another prophet. His name was Daniel. Came around the other time. The, the southern kingdom, right? They saw what happened in the north. They had a short reformation. They, they changed a little bit, but they kept being naughty, right? But God wasn't going to destroy them because he made a promise to David. 
But he also wasn't going to put up with the fact that they kept rejecting him. And so he ends up finally saying, I'm going to give you a timeout for 70 years. The Babylonians are going to come take you, and it says 70-year timeout is what's going to happen. And one of the guys that was part of that was a young man named Daniel, and I preached a whole bunch of series on that, so I'm not going to go all the way through this, but Daniel was one of those guys. He went as a young man, and even as a, as a foreigner in a different land, God raised him up to a position of prominence, and in the last half of Daniel, he got up these prophecies that God speaks through Daniel about how he's going to bring about the, the, the Messiah and how he's going to bring about his reconciliation in this world. It's amazing things. And in Daniel chapter 9, this is Daniel is an old man by this point, and he's seen God and his power. He's been delivered from all kinds of crazy things, right? And so he knows who God is. He knows that God is master even in Babylon, even in a country that's not the promised land, right? And he has this moment that this prayer is called the penitent prayer in Daniel 9. And Daniel is thinking back through the reasons why he is standing on Babylonian soil, the reason that his, he had to go through all the troubles that he went through in the time when he was a child, right? The reason why he, he's not able to be in Jerusalem. And this is what he says in that prayer. He says, We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Adonai, because we have sinned against you. Daniel, this great, amazing prophet, this wise prophet of God, when he's praying, he says to God, you have the right to send. It's not just that you're powerful, God. It's not that you sent us here because you are big and tough, and we made you mad, and then you sent us away. No, you have, we are covered with shame. We were the ones that were wrong. We did what we wanted to do, and we disobeyed you. And so what you did is right, even though I'm standing here in captivity. Daniel understood that his God is authority. His God has the right to be master. I think you find all the way through, if you in the Old Testament, over and over again, from prophets to kings to the patriarchs, all of them, they recognize something very fundamental, which we have to understand, that by his nature, God has a positional authority. He is master. He has the right to tell us what to do. And the reason he has the right to tell us what to do is because he made us. He owns this world. It's his. And he has the right to do with it what he wants. We have an obligation as his creation to obey him. But of course we don't. And so then what happened? Well, Adonai showed up. He took on flesh and he shows up. Now, if you think about it, you own something really nice. Say you buy like a really nice car. You know, you made, you made it with your own hands, like a beautiful car. And you're so proud of this car. It's gorgeous and awesome and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got a friend. You say, hey, you want to drive my car? They say, yeah, I'll drive your car. So here are the rules. You stop at all the stoplights, okay? You, you keep it under 100, right? You don't put a scratch on it. Sure, they take your keys and they peel out and they blow through the first stop sign. First thing they do, right? And as they scream around that first corner, you can see they're topping over 100 and all of the rocks are flying down the road and scratching up your great paint job and all of this kind of stuff. And then they finally stop and you finally catch up to them and you, and you get there and you show up. You are the owner of that car. You have the right to have that car treated the way that you said it should be treated. When the owner shows up, the one that has the right, would you be nice? See, God made a beautiful world. It was paradise, paradise, perfect. He said, use it, enjoy it, but here are the rules. And we blew by all of them. And so God shows up. Adonai takes on flesh, shows up, and he doesn't destroy us. That just blows my mind. See, the Lord is who is Jesus, right? 
the Lord. It says in John that all things were created by him. Nothing that has been created wasn't created if it wasn't for him, right? He is creator. He is the right, the authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth are mine, right? He is Adonai. He is the Lord. And the Lord shows up to his creation and a bunch of people that have been really bad. And what does he do? He saves us. The master saves us. Jesus, the Lord, when asked about it, he says, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It wasn't the fact that he just had this obligation he had to save you. He wanted to. That whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Then he says, you know, that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And he goes on to say that actually people don't need help being condemned. We're kind of there on our own. And that's why we needed a savior. And so the master shows up and saves us. And so let's look about Adonai, the Lord. How does he show up in the New Testament? Just a little different, right? He's he's a God who uh, who is very powerful and needs to be respected as such. So we can understand and take, I think, full advantage of the grace that he's given us. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, we see this. That you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. See, when the Lord came, one of the reasons he died on the cross was, was called redeem you. Redeem you from your sins. Okay, Think about redemption. Have you ever had a coupon? I got 39 cents for a baked beans, right? 39 cents. That 39 cents is nothing on that piece of paper until I take it to the store and then I redeem it. And then I get the 39 cents. Now that 39 cents is real. Does that make sense? Before it was just potential, but then it was redeemed and now I have it. Before the 39 cents was held captive by Safeway. But then I turned my coupon in and I redeemed that 39 cents and now I set it free. Is mine now. I didn't just take that 39 cents and cast it off into the parking lot. Oh, no, no. I redeemed that 39 cents and I put it somewhere valuable, my checking account. (laughs) Right? Redemption. You were bought with a price when you sinned. The price of your redemption was death. That's why Jesus came and died. And since it was only one death, you don't have to die again. Because he died for you. You have been redeemed. He's taken you, but he didn't just cast you out. But to understand this, God is not just, we're not just saying, God, you are a master, you have the right to tell me what to do because you're a creator, which is enough, but also because you're a redeemer. We are owned twice, Christians. Do you understand? Two times. We have double obligation to obey the Lord. But as Lord, as our master, then God does for us what masters do. He protects us and he provides for us. We are not his employees. We are part of his household. So if you have your Bibles, turn it to that Second Timothy chapter. Because in Second Timothy, God is doing something amazing. In Second Timothy, as we get to this, Second Timothy was a book written by the Apostle Paul to his disciple. He was making a guy named Timothy. The Apostle Paul was ready to die. He had lived his good life, right? He was passing on the torch to the next generation. The Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote this. He was expecting execution at any day. What happened in this? Well, Paul was called by God to go and spread the gospel to all people. He ends up eventually reading the book of Acts. He goes back to Jerusalem, and he's going to to make an offering there and stuff, and a riot stirs up. And all of a sudden, the Romans come out, and they save him, right? And they, they arrest him, and they beat him because that's what the Romans did, and then they put him on trial. And they realized that he was a Roman citizen. And he recognized he wasn't getting a fair trial. And so he did what Roman citizens could do. He said, I appeal to Caesar. 
And if you appeal to Caesar, it's like I appeal to the Supreme Court. And if once you say that, you have to be able to go to appeal your case before Caesar. Right? So he was outside of the legal system at this point. And so he was at a prison in Jerusalem, and now he's got to go up to Rome. Now, the bad part for him was is the Caesar at the time was this really awful guy who was named Nero, who didn't like Christians very much, liked to blame them for all kinds of things, right? But that's okay. He was at least safe for the moment. And he was on a boat being transported, on a prison ship, being transported back to Rome so he could face Caesar and give his case. And hopefully God would redeem him there and would save him from this. And on his way back, there was a bad storm. I mean, a bad storm. So bad that the, that the, the, the sailors were freaking out. And they were like, we got to start throwing cargo over, which sailors don't normally do because that's money from their pockets, right? But they start throwing cargo over. And they're like, gets to the point, they're like, we got to throw the food over too. You know, it's bad. And on that, it, 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 this book, it, it, we read about in Acts 23, it says that, the, that God showed up the following night after the first big thing. It says the following night that the Lord stood near Paul. And this is what the Lord said to Paul. Adonai showed up and it said this, take courage. That's what Adonai told to Paul. He says, take courage. He says, you have testified about me in Jerusalem. Now you must also testify about me in Rome. And then God goes on and says, you know what? All, I'm going to get you there. So though he was on a boat that was literally sinking, we have this, this great apostle says, you know what? I'm going to make it to Rome. And he calls all of these sailors around. He says, hey, guys, don't worry. I don't know how, but all of us are going to make it there. And then the boat sinks. And they're out stranded in the water, and eventually they float up onto an island. And they get on this island, and it's wet, and it's, they're cold, and all this kind of stuff. And so they build a, a fire. The locals build a fire, and they're building this fire. And Paul is warming himself up by the fire, and he gets bit by a really poisonous snake. And all of the people there, I mean, you can imagine Paul. He's like, I know I'm going to make it to Rome. But all the people in the village are looking at him like, you're going to die tonight. They're all just waiting for him to die. They're all just watching him. That's what it says intently, watching him. He's got this snake hanging out from his arm. Like, right? They're like, you're dead, dude. God must hate you. And he's like, no, I'm going to make it to Rome. And guess what? He doesn't die. And all the people were amazed by this miracle that he didn't die from this horrible bite from this poisonous snake. And he survived the shipwreck and all the sailors made it. And so the entire village becomes Christian. <laughs> they convert. God works in it. And then Rome sends another prison ship out, takes Paul back, and he goes up into Rome. And he's under house arrest and he's... And he, and he goes and he meets with, with Nero. And he writes about that first meeting here. And we start here in uh, chapter uh, 4. I'll start with verse 16. And he says this, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord, Adonai, stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. And as I was delivered from the lion's mouth, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You understand that passage you memorized was not from a guy's life when things were going well. He was in prison, going to go talk to Nero. And already once, everybody who was supposed to be with him abandoned him, but God did not. His Adonai, his master, does what the masters do, and he gave him protection. And then he says, delivered him from the lion's mouth. He literally delivered him from a lion's mouth. Because if Nero didn't like you, guess what he did to Christians? They got eaten by lions. God literally saved him from a shipwreck, a snake, and a lion. That's why he has confidence. But he had to be 
in a crashed boat. He had to be uh, stranded on an island to get bit by a snake, and he had to stand trial before Caesar to be delivered by the lions. And he says, God will deliver me safely. And he recognized that it wasn't this life that he was being delivered to, but to the heavenly kingdom. Paul has confidence in his Adonai. He knows that his Adonai is going to do his part to provide and protect from it. So he had to do his part. He needed to obey. So today we've talked about some important things about Adonai. What we learn about him, well, the first thing is that God is the rightful ownership of his creation. God has the right to tell us what to do. And for us in our life, if we want to tell God these are my morals, this is what I want to do, then we have to recognize that we are the ones that are, don't have the authority. God never gave you the right to come up with your own ethics. He said, this is the way my world works, and you have the responsibility to, obey by, to abide by them. That's the reality of it. We have the, he has the authority, he has the sovereignty to do with this world as he sees fit. Right? We also know that Adonai, the second thing is he has a very special relationship with God. This speaks to, when we say Lord, we recognize that we're not saying boss. We're saying master. We have a relationship with God that is very different and actually is very awesome that God wouldn't just hire us as hired hands, but brings us into his family and says, I've got work for you to do. I expect you, I have the right to expect you to obey, but also I will provide and protect you. How, how amazing is that? That's why I think in like Luke 6.46, Jesus says, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? <laughs> right? If we call Jesus Lord, we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's a reason that we say that in Scripture. This is what we, we are saved by God's grace through faith, yes. And that's great, but we have to call Jesus Savior. We accept his forgiveness, but also have to accept him as our master, as Lord. And so we say to God, not my will, but yours be done. That's what we do. That's part of the Christian life. That's what part of me disciple. Jesus said, go to all nations, make disciples. How do you do that? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Holy Spirit, bring them to faith, and then what? Teach them to obey everything he commanded. Too many Christians start, stop at the first thing, thinking that if somehow we elevate obedience, we somehow diminish grace, which is silly. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved for good works, right? You're not saved by obedience, but you're saved for obedience. You couldn't even obey God before, but now that you are in Christ, you can, and we have an obligation to do so. He is Lord. Last thing we find out about this is that to know God as Lord is a wonderful experience. God's laws are not awful. Here's the things that he tells me to do. He says, Aaron, worship, trust me. I'll take care of you. He says, Aaron, love your wife. And I want to help you have a a great relationship. You love your wife. You take care of your son and you raise him and know what is true and you provide and protect him, right? These are not bad things. God tells me, hey, Aaron, you know what? Tell the truth. Think that's bad? And you know what? I'm going to work in you and through you. God's commands are good. His ethics and morals are based upon reality. He loves us. And to be his servant is a wonderful thing. To be able to say, yes, Lord, not just yes, boss, to the king of kings and the Lord of lords is an amazing thing, isn't it? Because he doesn't just tell me to do work and then say, I'll give you just something. He gives me his heart. He gives me his family. And next week you get to find out how much deeper he gives us family. Before we can talk about what does it mean to be his child, I think we have to start by this, to recognize he is master and he deserves to be master. So how do you apply that in our life? Well, first thing you could do is take out your connection card because I got some ideas. Always want to have next steps. Discipleship is a walking after Jesus. First thing that you want to do 
maybe this week, is memorize 2 Timothy 4.18. Recognize the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. When it comes, know that, and he's going to bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. This is something that can help you. Or maybe what you would do this week is you could say, I'm going to read all of 2 Timothy. I want to read a letter of a disciple who is ready to pass on. What is a faithful servant of God? What does it look like when he's passing on the torch? What does that look like? It's not a long letter, but it is powerful. Or maybe this week you say, you just simply say, yes, Lord. Stop arguing with your master. He's going to win. Right? And he has the right to ask things of you. Look what he asked Abraham to do. Was it easy? No, it wasn't easy, but it was great. If Abraham stayed in Ur of the Chaldeans, we would not name our kids Abe today, right? We wouldn't know his name. He wouldn't have made a huge difference. How about if Moses, if he didn't go and and say, yes, Lord, God still would have redeemed the Jews, but we would not know Moses. He would have missed out on the best part, right? Or how about Isaiah? Say, yes, Lord. He will call you to hard things, but he's not calling you in there alone. He will stand with you by your side. He's your master saying, yes, Lord. How about this? Maybe what you need to do is not just say, yes, Lord, but back it up with your actions. Trust him. Keep obeying him. If there's something in your life right now that you don't want to do, but you know God wants you to do, do it. Right? You just trust God. You obey him. If it's to stop doing something, then stop doing it. Trust him. Give it to him over and over and over again. If that's what it takes, but obey him. Maybe that's where we begin. Hope all of you make commitments, or if there's something else you need to commit to, let me know. Here in a second, we're going to take our offering. As we do, take these connection cards with your commitments on there and drop them in the offering basket, um, along with uh, your tithes and offerings. You can also put in here, too, as well as any prayer requests, because we do talk to this master of ours. He loves to hear from us, and he works in our lives doing powerful things. So write down your prayer requests, mark down your commitments, take your tithes and offerings. In a second, we're going to take our, our offering, put them all in the basket. Let's pray for them. First, and then we will have the worship team come and close us with some good worship. Let's pray. Father God, first we call you master, and you are master. You own everything, you own us, and then you doubly owned us. Thank you for sending your son into the world to save us, not condemn us, to purchase us back, redeem us from our, our sinful state, from death itself. Now, Father, we want to be obedient to you as our master. Help us in this church to put aside our own arguments and our own reasonings why we want to just serve ourselves, but help us bend a knee to you. And Father, as we do that, may we find that your joy is there. Give us the courage to trust you. And Father, I thank you for your grace in the process. I'm grateful that we're not saved by good works. I'm grateful that we're not saved by, by our obedience. That is awesome. But Father, I'm also grateful we're saved for good works and that you've called us to obedience. So help us to live up to that calling. Lord, let's be a church that's not legalistic, but one that's growing more and more and more righteous by the day as we help other people experience your love and goodness. Father, take these commitments and these tithes and these offerings and use them to build your kingdom for your glory. We pray this in the wonderful name of our Adonai Jesus. Amen.